I fell in love with Wimbledon the very first time they sent me over uh, in 1979. And Bud Collins and, and Donald L. were doing the telecast then. And they just sent me over. I was, um, I guess, uh, in NBC's eyes, their number one man at the time. And they just wanted, since they were going to televise the event live for the first time, they wanted my presence there. Bud could have destroyed me. He could, he could see that I was eventually going to probably um, move him over a chair. Uh, but he was as generous as he's been to everyone that shows any love for the game of tennis. Hey everyone, John Worth. I'm here. It's this week's Sports Illustrated Tennis Podcast. It is Thursday. I'm here with my lovely producer, Jamie Lasanti. We have a very special guest this week. The great Dick Enberg. As many of you know, he just closed out his career, an absolute first ballot sports media Hall of Fame career, almost 60 years in all sorts of capacities, all sorts of sports. You will not find a more versatile play-by-play man, and you also won't find a nicer guy or a better writer. I think you'll get a sense from this conversation of just what a lovely human being we're talking to here it was an honor to have known him while he was at the top of his game in sports media. It sounds as though he's got some great plans for what to do in this next chapter of his life. Apart from covering Super Bowls and Final Fours and Olympics and all sorts of other events, he also covered 28 Wimbledons and for a long time was the voice on center court along with Bud Collins. And it was great to spend some time with Dick Enberg. Without further ado, the great doctor. Thanks so much. How, uh, how are you? Good, good. It's the third day of the rest of my life. <laughs> I was going to say this—you've uh, you've gotten the confetti out of your hair, and you're—you're uh, you're, you're still panting from your your victory lap. Yeah, it was um, an avalanche of love. You know, the emotional tsunami. <laughs> How are you today? I mean, what, what what does this feel like? Well, I feel like there's a hundred things that I am going to do. I, there's so much to catch up and uh, clean up. And uh, already this week, I've worked on my play, the Al McGuire play, the one-man act play. Uh, Anthony Crivello, who won a Tony Award, uh, is going to replace uh, Cotter Smith because we're doing an eight-week run in Milwaukee uh, in uh, January, February. And uh, we're doing some rewriting on it, trying to um, add a, mo- a little more depth, maybe show a little <laughs> more of the darker side of Coach. Um, and uh, that that's uh, one of the projects. I'm also working on a potential book. And um, my 10 most memorable moments, not only the importance of the game, but the backside of the story of the, you know, it's, as you know, John, the, all the involvements, the troubles, the laughs, the disappointments, the chuckles, and uh, some of those events uh, did have plenty of that. So that's another. We're building a, a, a cabin up in McCall, Idaho, kind of a retreat for the family. After I'm gone, I'm hoping all the kids will be able to go to Grandpa's uh, place there and it's got everything from archery to figure skating to golf to indoor tennis to all the water sports so yeah it's been that's just in the last two days <laughs> oh, someone told me at Wimbledon I, I said uh I don't remember it was you know McAtee or one of our mutual friends I, I said is uh you know is Mr. Enberg coming and they said no no no, he's traveling I don't know he's going to Israel or maybe tur- sounds like you're doing some uh sounds like you'll be doing some traveling as well yeah traveling is high uh, Barbara and I love to to travel and we this year we've gone to uh, Machu Picchu and a two-week trip to Israel. That was just a mind-boggling experience. And yeah, you know, we've had we've got plenty more on the list. I've, our, I only have one grandson, two-year-old Archie, and uh, his mom and dad, uh, our daughter, 
they moved to Rwanda for a, a two-year job oh, wow. opportunity. So he's a long way away, and we're going to have to go to Rwanda. We've been there before. We we trekked with the gorillas. They wanted to keep me, but <laughs> um, so we know the land, and we we were very impressed by the country. It's really the the garden spot of um, of Africa, even though they, of course, had their terrible uh, genocide 23, 24 years ago. And you're able to do that trip and then go back to uh, National League Baseball and the uh, and and the Marriott in Cincinnati. <laughs> well, that's uh, you know I I always love travel, uh, John. I I, I like uh, being in new places, and even though some of the hotels uh, aren't uh, luscious by any means, um, and I and I like uh, to be on an airplane. I get a lot of good thinking time in on an airplane, whether. There's no one knocking on the door or ringing the bell. So, um, That's great. yeah, I'm, I'm going to miss some of that. I'm going to miss, like the athletes always say, I'm going to miss your colleagues, the people with whom you've worked uh, all this time. But they've really given me a feathery uh, uh, stop, uh, the Padres have. They've uh, they've kept my office. They call it Dick's Closet because it's so messy. <laughs> but at least symbolically it means that I can go back to the ballpark and do some writing or do some voiceover work and leave the baseball door a jar, even though I'm not going to do any play-by-play. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm really excited about what's ahead. I mean, one of my friends said, you know, in 60 years of broadcasting, think of it as a, a high-rise building. You're on the 60th floor, and now you're going to go up to the 61st floor. And there's, you never know how exciting that might be, and I, I'm really counting upon that. That's great. I, I hope you, selfishly, I hope you keep writing. I think, I think you uh, may well be the most deft writer of... Uh, of of any TV play by play guy, so I hope uh, I hope writing is part mm-hmm. of uh, the next chapter. Well, I accept that as really a rich compliment coming from you, John. Thank you. I wanted to ask you. I was going to ask how someone with your sense of uh, Midwest modesty has been handling these these plaudits, well deserved as they are, in this uh, this this tour these past few weeks. But uh, <laughs> I, I wanted. Uh, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I, I'm not very comfortable with that, and I never have been. I've never felt. Um, it's my training as a, my Finnish father and mother. Um, they they taught me early on that um, as soon as you think you're so big that you can't improve, you can only go one way. And uh, don't take yourself that seriously. Just try to be good to people and, and improve uh, your your approach to life. And um, you know, it's not been easy for me. Um, I, I, I I never felt that as a broadcaster that and it was important for me to feel that way. And I about all sports that I've never been important, more important than the game. I'm just there to compliment the game, and hopefully whatever I'm able to offer to a broadcast telecast enhances the experience for the audience. And I, I'm fortunate, as, as you are, to sit next to the greatest players uh, in that sport. And it's not only been tennis, but it's been all the sports for me. There have been Hall of Famers, rub shoulders with and and chew fat with. It'd be like two blokes going to the game and goodness, look who sat next to me, Merlin Olson. Oh, Don Drysdale sat next to me. Oh, John McEnroe, how are you? And picking their brains. So that, that's that been part of the excitement of, of my my life. And uh, and then, and so all these all this love that has come by, it's been, you know, it's really been nice, and it, it's shown me that maybe I should be more open and embrace it and that a lot of people did care about me and, and what goes on and, uh, in the future and, and cared about what I gave to them in my 60 years. And I guess that is the ultimate compliment. Write that book. You, you mentioned Merlin Olson. You mentioned John McEnroe. These, these are analysts. I mean, these, these are just to be clear. These are people you're, you're sitting next to 
in the booth, and I, I always felt like your your versatility was something that was remarkable, but also sort of made, I, I can't imagine what that was like for you, especially pre-internet, where you weren't just going from event to event, but you were toggling from one sport to a completely different sport in, in a matter of weeks. How, how, was that by choice? And I, I'm curious about the preparation when you couldn't just log on to a website and say, oh, yes, that's who Notre Dame basketball is starting this season. <laughs> no, but I think that's, um, it goes to, back to the challenge of being a college professor. I love teaching, and in fact, that may be one of uh, the avenues that I take in the next year or two, I go back to campus. Romantically, I, I'd like to be a, a sophomore again and get patches on my my sports coats on my elbows and uh, be able to walk the campus and enjoy the lectures and music and games and be able to be in a classroom and accept the challenge of the raised hand, which always excited me. And so the preparation was never work. I'd love the preparation. I'd like to take all the time to try to find some nugget or some piece of information or some turn some phrase that might make the uh, broadcast or telecast more interesting. And, uh, and so, um, yeah, the, uh, the writing or the interest in various sports uh, really comes all the way back to when I was a kid. I mean, I memorized the, the sports page. The guys at the fraternity house said, if you want to read the sports page, you better get up earlier than Enberg because he's going to grab it and go to his room and he reads every page, every column. And so it's been, you know, it's been my life. I love, as a fan, I've loved preparing for the fans. And in a way, that's my transformation right now. You know, I'm um, I'm, I'm transforming and going to the student body, uh, the fans. I'm going to be a fan now. And I'm really looking forward to being able to sit in a stadium or sit in front of my television and yell and scream like all the other good people that have supported me all these years. Still reading the sports page. I, I, um, I, I want, we'll talk tennis in a, in a second, but I wanted to ask sort of more, more generically, I'm curious about, I mean, you're, I, I did a project with Al Michaels, and I know one thing we talked about was retaining dignity, and uh, he, I think he's done that, I think you've done that, but did you feel as though you had to resist whether it was coining players with nicknames or hosting game shows, how are you able to avoid sort of the dignity stripping trappings of uh, media in, in 2016 and uh, stay above the fray? Well, I don't know how to really answer that. I just, uh, I think being yourself and being honest with yourself and your audience. And, um, and I think it really does go back to the traps come in when you try to be more important than the game you're calling. And you try to think, well, maybe if I do this, then I'll get more attention. Maybe I'll get the headline. And I think that there is some of that. And it, it really began back early in my broadcasting career when uh, the uh, introduction of uh, every newspaper had a TV sports critic. And USA Today had a column every day. And, right. and a, lot, a lot of my colleagues really were concerned about what was said about them in those uh, column, uh, various columns and concerned about it or tried to come up with a clever phrase or some incredible uh, outside piece of information that would get their name in the paper. I, I never wanted to play that game. I don't, I didn't think that was healthy at all. And, and, uh, and, and sometimes uh, even I would say to my wife, gosh, I, I think I had a good telegraph this week in the NFL. I wonder why my name's not in there. And she said, well, why don't you call those guys and, and tell them what you're saying? Maybe they'll put your name in there. Otherwise don't complain about it. And, and her point was well taken. If only Rudy Bartsky knew 
how much power he had. I um wow. I, I, I wanted to um I wanted to ask you about college basketball too because I I think you and I first met when you came to Bloomington. I mean, you, I, I think you were getting some award and you you came to Indiana, and I remember that you when you and Al McGuire came to town, that was like college football game day. I mean that that was certification, and for years and years I always associated you with college basketball. Where where does that rank when when you sort of self-identify and look back on your career, I'm, I'm always curious that, uh, I mean, where, how do you see yourself? Well, it's, I'll, I'll uh, take a little detour here because I'm asked this oftentimes. The favorite, my favorite, uh, the best sport to broadcast is baseball. It's the most challenging and, and it also was my, the game I tried to play and I cared the most about. The best event uh, is Wimbledon. So we can talk about that okay. if you want later on. Sure. Um, and, and now I've gone off track on this tangent. What was your question? That's again? no tangent. No, I'm curious how you, oh, how you see yourself. Okay. No, but how do you Bas- see yourself? How do you see well, your... well, basketball, well, basketball, you know, because at uh, Central Michigan as another graduate student, I called their games. Then when I uh, earned a um, graduate assistantship at Indiana, I, I won the audition for their uh, new IU Sports Network. We were the first announcers, Phil Jones, who was the CBS White House correspondent was my color man at the time. So I grew through the Big Ten, and that allowed me to uh, call the 1961 NCAA final between Cincinnati and Ohio State. Uh, Columbus, Ohio Station had heard about my work and said, would you like to do it? And I that was, worked it alone. Um, <laughs> wow. And it went, it, it, that was the national telecast. It went to Cincinnati and Ohio State. That was it. Um, and then moving out to the West Coast to coach and, and teach at Cal State, what is Cal State Northridge now. And eventually Gene Autry hired me in 65. And a year later, Dick Enberg was the solo voice of the UCLA Bruins. And how can you not love college basketball when your first full experience uh, was nine years calling UCLA games and they won eight national championships? <laughs> That's not going to happen again. I was going to say, I, I hope uh, I, I hope you knew that sometimes teams don't win the NCAA title. Actually, you, you told me, wait, I'll, I'll, I'll take you, let, let's do this tangent. You told me a story once about, this is a great story that I don't think people know. Didn't John Wooden get an offer to manage baseball? I oh, yeah, Joe Brown, the, yeah, Joe Brown, the manager or the owner of the uh, Pittsburgh Pirates, in the, it was early in John Wooden's successful run at UCLA, offered him uh, the managerial job. And uh, he was just getting things really... Uh, cooking uh, in Westwood, so he felt that that was his uh, uh, way of uh, going on for his uh, professional life. But uh, I, I talked with uh, Coach Wooden. He was 99. We were hoping he'd make it to 100. We went to his apartment that he lived, lived in for decades, very simple, and still has his love letters for his wife, Nell, on the pillow. I, oh. I hope they're reading them up in heaven today. Um, and and we uh, it was we knew he wasn't going to last very long. We and he had he felt good that day, and we were there maybe an hour and a half or so, and we didn't even talk about basketball. We talked the whole time about baseball. He knew that I had the Padres job, and um, we started to argue about our left-handed hitting outfield. And Ted Williams was my hero, and he loved Stan Musial. And of course, you got to put Babe Ruth in there, and then we argued about all the rest. But he uh, he was a pretty good shortstop in his high school days and uh, tried out with the Cincinnati Reds, hurt his uh, shoulder, throwing arm, and, and couldn't continue. And that's a, that's a blessing for college basketball for certain. No, but he, he, he admitted openly baseball was his favorite sport. How about that? And, and, the, and the Pirates basically said a, a leader is a leader and a strategist is a strategist, and 
this wooden guy has the gift and we can teach him you know we'll we'll teach him yeah. how to substitute a lefty reliever if that's what it takes but this guy this guy has the gift but john wooden had connie mack written all over him and I, and I, as you think back he would have been the next connie mack just you mean just a, sort of a dignified sideline dignified, uh, yeah cerebral uh, a tougher discipline than a lot of folks would have uh, would have known i mean he could be buried without the uh, uh, being Al McGuire profane, he could be uh, as tough as anyone. No, he would. Uh, no, there'd be no question in my mind that he he would have done well. Although you know, today's baseball players would beat up any potential leader, but uh, in those days, um, might might have might have worked. Um, I thank God he stayed at UCLA. How'd, how'd you get speaking of baseball? How'd you get Ted Williams to talk to you? <laughs> you really want to know that story? This is it's a great story. Long. Come on, we got time. It's a podcast. <laughs> It's uh, well. I grew up uh, in on a farm in Michigan, uh, about an hour drive uh, north of Detroit, and um, uh, we those were. And Scully and I talked about this, uh, how fortunate we were that we grew up in the days of black and white radio. Uh, we were able to use our imagination, and I think those skills are learned by just listening to the great announcers of the, of the time, Barber and Allen. Al Heffler and Connie Desmond and Bill uh, Stern and Harry Wismer and all the rest, you, you, you made your own uh, game in your mind. And with two uh, people could be listening to the same broadcast and, and saying two different games. But anyway, the influence of those voices and how they painted the picture certainly played into our careers. And, and Ben and I both uh, uh, agreed to that. So anyway, Ted Williams, uh, I, I don't know why initially, um, I guess, in fact, I, I go all the way back to when he, in 1946 All-Star Game, I was 11 years old, and I was in, we were driving after the war, World War II, and listening on the radio to the All-Star Game, and Ted Williams hit a home run off the Ephus pitch, uh, and I think he had two home runs in that game, and, and I guess that started my interest in him, and then because he was such a, um, at times, uh, an incredible character in the public eye, and the fact he was maybe the best hitter ever, um, I tried to be like him. I tried to hit left-handed and would bat rocks and on the farm left-handed to try to improve my skills. So anyway, I hitchhiked to Detroit as a high school student. Anytime Boston came to town to see Ted Williams uh, play against the Tigers and hit in Briggs Stadium. Uh, and as old fans will recall, the Tigers became Tiger Stadium. The right field overhang in the second deck made it a really short porch. It was 325 down the line, but the overhang actually, uh, Kurt Gibson said, <laughs> if you were on the front edge of the warning track, the edge closest uh, to home plate, uh, a ball could be in the air going uh, above your head and you'd lose it in the overhang. You, you, that's how far out it extended. Anyway, uh, I, I would go uh, and hitchhike down. We knew where the players stayed, the Book Cadillac Hotel in downtown Detroit. And uh, you always could pick them out when they uh, came out of the hotel because in those days they all wore those uh, wingtip uh, brown, white, or black and white shoes. And one day here comes Pinky Higgins, the manager of the Red Sox, and, and Williams come out of the hotel. And oh, we followed them. And they walked up Michigan Avenue from the hotel to, to the stadium. And uh, my buddy and I followed them. If they stopped, we'd stop. If they looked in the window, we would look in the window. But never getting close enough to ask for an autograph. No, that would have been. Uh, that would be on uh, belief for us at the time. And uh, we would just shadow them all the way to the ballpark. And by the time they got there, I mean, it didn't matter if we, we saw the game or batting practice. We were so excited to be that close to the splendid splinter. 
And then you go you know, to the batting practice, and it's a shame that uh, we kind of, in today's world, shut off batting practice to the fans. Uh, the players want more time off. They don't take infield, and, and the batting practice is so much earlier. But Ted Williams taking batting practice was uh, the greatest cellist in the world uh, uh, rehearsing for a concert at, at Carnegie Hall. I mean, he was um, he never hit the ball poorly. Every ball that he swung at, he hit sharply, and he would tear apart right field in Detroit. When the game started, um, I mean, it was an easy home run for him to bang one into that upper deck in, in right field. In fact, as we became friends later in life, because I'm back in San Diego, Ted of San Diego would come back for uh, various uh, banquets and sorts. And I finally said, well, hey, Ted, if you, when you were um, 38, 39, and of course he hit, he came within seven hits of hitting 400 when he was 39 or 40. Right. Um, I said, uh, we all dreamed that you know, since you hit so well in Detroit that you get traded to the Tigers. And just out of curiosity, if if you become a Tiger, even at that age, how many home runs would you have hit in a season? He said 80. He didn't even let me finish this 80 home runs, and I believe it. Anyway, he, uh, it's, uh, he, was, he was my idol, and for him to recognize me uh, late in my career is it's the completion of such a beautiful cycle that you can have a hero and maybe even sometime the hero will get to know you. That's, that's, uh, it's, he was a, you know what they say about him too, but when they say better, better fisherman, better fly fisherman than, uh, than hitter. He, yeah, he, mastered he was two a perfectionist. Uh, he was a perfectionist. I don't doubt that, <laughs> but, uh, I'm not, I'm, I don't stand on the, uh, Thanks of the river to cheer any fly yeah, fisherman, exactly. but I cheer. <laughs> <laughs> well, well put. Um, all right, let's talk tennis. 28, 28 Wimbledons, I believe. And you, you said that that's your favorite event to cover? It is. The, it's the best event because, you know, all the other great championships and the other sports last only a long weekend or a full week. But Wimbledon is two weeks to fortnight allows you to truly embrace this event and uh, the fact that the, you're in that cathedral of tennis and the grass court and the, the manner in which the British uh, pay honor uh, to, to this, their big summertime event. And the fact that it's not just a men's event, it's the, the greatest players, men and women, uh, are seeking this coveted title that will secure their place in history. The fact that it's all the history. I mean, it goes on and on. And uh, you know, I'm, you were very complimentary, John, about writing. I, I can write a little bit when I'm in love with something, and I think that's true of almost everyone. We can, um, we're all a poet when we fall in love with a person or a thing. Uh, people like you, John, uh, the real writers, can write about something they don't like. <laughs> I can't do that. I can't write the letter to somebody and say, I don't love you anymore. But I can write a pretty good one if I love it. And I, I fell in love with Wimbledon the very first time they sent me over uh, in 1979, and Bud Collins and, and Donald L. were doing the telecast then, and they just sent me over. I was, um, I guess, uh, in NBC's eyes, their number one man at the time, and they just wanted, since they were going to televise the event live for the first time, they wanted uh, my presence there with, with Bud and uh, Donald. And, and Bud could have destroyed me. He could, he could see that I was eventually going to probably uh, move him over a chair, uh, but he was as generous as he's been to everyone that shows any love for the game of tennis, much less Wimbledon. And he helped me that very first year to to see it and feel it. And, and that's because they didn't know quite what to do with me. They said, well, why don't you just watch a lot of the tennis? You can do the commercials and do the opens and closes. And then at the end, uh, 
take as much time as you want and write your memories right, of, right, right, of your right. birth. No, I was say, they they let started. you. Uh, that, that's what I, I mean. They they let you really write the heck out of it, didn't they? Oh well, because you know, here's the good fortune, John. As you know, we're, today's world television is. Can you do it? Uh, we'll give you three minutes, and but uh, show a little more emotion and try to cut it to two. Yeah, <laughs> but right, in those right. days, uh, the the finals uh, had a block of six hours on NBC. Well, the final, even the best of the finals, only go, might go three and a half, four hours. They had two hours to fill, and they'd fill it with. Uh, backup video of the women's final or the mixed doubles or the doubles. And so they said, write as much as you want, and we'll see what you have. And if we like it, we'll just back time the end of the show to your memories. So let's say I, I wrote uh, sometimes 13, 15 minutes. Oh my God. And so they would just uh, say, okay, just back off 13, 15 from the end of the show. We'll time everything to Enbridge memories. How lucky is that to be as fortunate as a baby? <laughs> yeah, you know. <laughs> Let it all flow. <laughs> You're making me very jealous. <laughs> and I don't think we have images of that, so let's cut it down to 145. No, okay. that's uh, <laughs> the, and and you, I mean, Mac and Roborg, which which is I don't know if you saw this, which is now being turned into a movie. I mean, all the t- classic matches year after year, and you were right there. I, I also don't know if people get this sense anymore of where the booth is. But do you want no, you want to explain where you are on site? But but I don't know I don't know if television today really conveys it in a way that it used to. I mean, do you, do you want to explain where you're watching these these Wimbledon finals from on center court? Well, there was that cramped little. Uh, it, it was the back end of the old scoreboard, and we would squeeze in behind the people keeping score. In those days, it wasn't digital, and um, and there was room actually. Uh, they had these little uh, thin glass windows that made terrible noise when you tried to slide them open and close, and and in fact, whenever uh, we did an opening on the show, especially with uh, you know, with Chris and John, the three of us. There was only room for two chairs in there, so the three of us had to <laughs> cuddle up and 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 uh, use our our butts on two chairs uh, in order to get in that little window, so that they could take the shot of the three of us for our, our, our limited on cameras. Uh, it was intimate at best, and uh, I, I hate to think of. What was in there in the other uh, fifty weeks or or the other yeah, the year? Exactly. <laughs> but um, yeah, and, and we're right next to the royal box. I mean, if you were in the as you look at the royal box from the far side, uh, immediately to the left and down, that was the corner where the the broadcast location existed. And I can remember one one time, we were uh, part of the problem was we sometimes we'd be at center court and that was our only position. But the best match was over on court one. So they would be shooting the action on court one, and we would be calling it from center court. Well, meanwhile, on center court, there's another match uh, being engaged. And one time, we're, we're, it's a very exciting match over on court one, and I'm, I'm shouting my oh my's and all the rest. And uh, <laughs> right in the middle of our telecast, this beautiful English woman, elderly woman, comes over, She's sitting down the row in front of us. We're, we're literally in the next row of stands if they if they didn't have the booth. And she's standing in front of our window and knocking on it with her fist and saying, "Young man, young man, if you don't tone it down, I'm calling the police." <laughs> <laughs> oh my! So you... that was a kind of the unprofessional uh, situation we were in. Now they, they have those booths up high. Uh, under the roof center court. It's not quite as much fun up there. 
I love that though. And wouldn't you say give? Wouldn't you rather have that cramped as it may have been over, uh, you know, the the booth way the heck over above the fifty yard line, or even the U.S. Open booth that's I'm sure more spacious, but quite a quite a bit of distance from the court. Yeah, the U.S. Open booth is about as ideal. I mean, it's not too high and it's perfectly located. Probably the best broadcast location of the uh, of the four majors. Um, but you're right. I, I the you know the struggles of the old days when everything wasn't perfect made it all the more interesting for us. And uh, and better stories certainly uh, occurred out of that. There was a, another uh, working with McEnroe, and and I probably this was the match maybe Tracy Austin at the time. And you'll know the Don the, the story, and you'll know the exact number. And I'm, I'm saying 1997. Richard Washington. Uh, now Washington and Richard Krychek. Sure. That sound right? 97? Yeah, 96. Anyway, yeah, yeah. The, it was the long shot. Two long shots. Uh, Krychek had beaten Pete Champers, who was winning all the Wimbledon's at that time. And so Krychek from the Netherlands and, and now Washington, a long shot American. And uh, and we come on the air uh, maybe 10 minutes before the match begins. And that was the year that the well-endowed Wimbledon barmaid, the 23-year-old barmaid, decided to streak center court. And of course, I've been taught don't ever, you know, something if it's somebody running on the court or there's something away from the action that isn't appropriate, ignore it. You just go ahead as if it isn't happening. And so I'm doing the usual sacred tones of center court Wimbledon and these two long shot uh, um, uh, stars who get their opportunity to win uh, treasured Wimbledon. I'm talking in these tones, and she jumps out down to the right of our booth and then runs all the way across. Uh, the uh, center court to the court to the Royal Box End. And I'm going on in this tone and that thing. I said, she's naked! She's <laughs> naked! Get a shot over there! She, she's right up on that now! That's it. it just totally blows my cover. I'm trying to pretend it's not happening. And McEnroe is screaming to the world to take a shot of this woman who was a rather attractive. In fact, I think five or six bobbies fought over who was yeah, going to arrest her. Around. Exactly. <laughs> It and be, the Duke was up there with a big smile and that unusual clap of his. I think he enjoyed it, too. Even the, the, there was a, a notice out of the All England Club the next day. It was a very wet Wimbledon, so we call. And uh, they said in, in light of the dismal conditions that the weather is brought to this uh, fortnight, uh, the levity actually was a, a bright light. And I <laughs> something to that effect. Uh, I, but, I remember... Uh... Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a little different than the fan that runs on to, uh, to left field and has to deal with Angel Pagan or, or whoever it was. But I, I remember, I, I will not repeat it on the air, but uh, Mal Washington had one of the all-time great sports quotes in conjunction with that event that I, I, encourage, <laughs> I encourage people to look it up. Um, uh, how is, well, wait um, a minute now. You've got to at least text me that. Or let this, me know. I, I didn't I'll, uh, I'll, I'll mail it to you uh, offline. This is what, <laughs> okay. Google's your friend here, but I need to keep my job. Um, okay. I, I, uh, I, I said half an hour. We're at the, the half hour mark. So let, let me just sort of ask in, in closing, let, let's stick with tennis. And what do you see going forward for this sport as sort of the virtues and the challenges from, from where you stand and from your involvement in the sport all these years, I mean, where, where do you see tennis in the sportscape, and where do you see it going from here? Boy, that's, um, you know, I, I, I think the game has improved. The players certainly are better and better. I I, I rule a bit at the uh, the equipment changes have made it such a different game. Right. Now they, uh, Rod Labor lives here in Southern California. In fact, he was nice enough to come to 
the ceremonies at the uh, Petro Park the other night. And, and I, I think about him with that wooden racket, or McEnroe even with his uh, Woody, and, and how they were able to maneuver the ball and how they were able to play the game at such a high level. And, and, and it, it wasn't always you know, power. Um, I, I, the delicate nature of the game is also something to behold. And, um, I, I, yeah, I don't know how you change all that. Golf has done the same thing with the, with the ball. And it's the balls and the rackets, and it's the balls and the clubs and golf. Uh, people want power. They want uh, uh, that. That apparently excites them more, and um, and we're, we're playing to the power players, and that's why uh, I think Roger Federer uh, really could have played with that wooden racket and still have been one of the greatest of all time, if not the, the greatest of all, all time. Uh, that he um, he didn't need to have the the, uh, the hyped up balls or whatever or the or the rackets as, as we know them today. I think he would even even he could have for most of his opponents he could have given them any racket they won. He could have taken a real good Woody and probably given given them a good game. I'll I'll take the frying pan. Ah, uh, that's great. I like that we close with Fe- from one classic to another. Um, I wish you a lot of travel. Enjoy being a fan, but I do hope that uh, we get some more writing from you. Well, that's really that's kind of you, John. I enjoy your work. Keep it up. Thanks so much. Good luck and congrats. Enjoyed it. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks for listening, everyone. That's this week's Sports Illustrated Tennis Podcast. That, of course, was Dick Enberg. I could have talked to that man all day, or more accurately, I could have sat here and just listened to his stories. Um, That's my kind of guy. What a lovely human being. What a skilled announcer. What a lovely writer. If you haven't seen the Al McGuire play, or if you don't know about it, we should have paused maybe for a moment and referenced that. Um, along with the coach Al McGuire, Dick Enberg, they were the two voices of college basketball for NBC in a long time in the 80s. And after Al McGuire passed away, Dick Enberg helped write a play about McGuire that uh, will be touring. I think they've had some limited shows in San Diego in Milwaukee, but that may well come to you. I'd encourage you to, uh, to keep an eye on it. Keep an eye out for Dick Enberg's book. And boy, I tell you, they, they don't make them like that anymore. Just, just a lovely guy, and I was happy to have... Uh, Spent half an hour hearing his stories again. Could have could have made the rest of the afternoon. Would you agree with that, Jamie Lasanti? I agree. Thank you. Um, all right, that's this week's Sports Illustrated Tennis Podcast. This is a happier podcast. Would you not agree, Jamie Lasanti, than discussing the ins and outs of Maria Sharapova in her 15-month ban reduction for a banned substance? Um, thank you, Dick Enberg. You are the disinfectant on the Sports Illustrated Tennis Podcast this week. We'll have a new guest next week. Keep the ideas coming. Feel free to keep the feedback, criticism, constructive or otherwise coming. All uh, all feedback is always welcome and read. And we'll do it again in seven days. Have a good week, everyone. Again, I'm John Wertheim. That's Jamie Lasanti. We were thrilled to have spent a few moments with Dick Enberg. Talk to you next week. Thank mm-hmm. you.